0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal, I'm Rob Mendez, and this is Episode 9, Al-Hakam the First. This episode of History of Portugal is brought to you by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and sign up for a tier of support. And thank you so much to Gina Avlad for signing up already. Also, you can help others find this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. Last episode, we covered the remarkably long reign of Alfonso II until his death in 842 AD. Now, I know that at the end of last episode, I said that we would be continuing the story of the Asturian kings. But we're not going to be doing that today. Today, we will be going back in time a few years so that we may catch up with what was happening in al-Andalus during the reign of al-Hakam. By the end of the episode, we will be about 20 years away from the death of Alfonso II from the Umayyad perspective. But before we get started, there's something I would like to shine a light on. When we hear the word monarchy or king, There's a natural tendency for us to equate these words with absolute, autocratic, one-man rule. But the true, absolute monarchies only came into existence, really, in the 17th century. So, when thinking of medieval monarchs, especially early medieval monarchs, it is perhaps useful to think of them, in an oversimplified analogy, not so much as dictators, but as CEOs of a company, and the upper nobility as members of the board. Sure, the CEO runs the show, but they also have to make sure that the board members are pleased and that their interests are taken care of. Because otherwise, well, they might start talking amongst themselves about how a change in leadership is needed. And I guarantee you that there will be a lot more knives involved in the medieval version Of this change of leadership. Just keep this in mind while listening to this show, because it goes at least part of the way to explain why the medieval era was defined by so much violence. And now, let's get started. As mentioned in the last episode, Al Hakam I rose to the throne of Al Andalus in 796 at the age of 26 upon the death of his father, Hisham I. Al-Hakam, though, faced some serious opposition to his ascension, having to face down his two uncles and revolts both in the city of Toledo and the Ebro Valley. And that was just year one of his reign. And year two was to feature an incident that is one of the best recorded events of Al-Hakam's reign even if it is a grim one. Early in the second year of his reign, the emir unwittingly sparked a rebellion in the city of Toledo by replacing the governor of the city. This revolt was led by a guy named Ubayd Allah ibn Hamir. Since al-Hakam was too busy dealing with his insurrectionist uncles, he sent orders to his Berber garrison commander Amrus bin Yusuf, in the city of Talvera, to deal with this revolt. However, this was not going to be a simple proposition. You see, Toledo was a heavily fortified city. So, there was just no way that Amrus could surround and besiege the city into submission. Taking advantage of the hardcore factionalism that pervaded Al-Andalus... Amrus opened secret negotiations with the Banu Mahsa faction and promised them that one of their leaders would be appointed as governor of Toledo if they killed Ubayd. Soon after, they did exactly that, killing and beheading Ubayd. Congratulating themselves on a job well done, the Banu Mahsa packed Ubayd's severed head and headed to Talvera to meet with Amrus to discuss next steps. When they arrived in Talvera, they were received with great honors, upon which they were immediately seized and killed by the Berbers. Amrus then sent this grisly bundle of heads to Cordoba as a status update for al-Hakam on the Toledan revolt. They were making headway. We're told that shortly after, Amrus convinced the already disunited population of Toledo to let him and his troops into the city. Once inside, Amrus made a general announcement that a great feast was going to be held to celebrate the restoration of the emir's rightful authority over the city. The leaders of all the top families and factions were invited to attend this feast. The guests were escorted individually through a narrow gate to the banquet hall, where they were promptly apprehended and beheaded. We're told that their bodies were thrown into a ditch specifically dug for this purpose, which gave this massacre, the name that it's known by the day of the ditch. One of our sources claims that 700 people were killed in this incident and as usual, we have no way of knowing if that number is even remotely true. But more significant than exact figures, what the story reveals to us is just how divided and factionalized the city in particular, and al-Andalus at large, really was. The fact that the Banu Massa were so quick to turn on their supposed rebel leader is indicative of just how ruthless the competition for power among the elites really was. And follow that up, with the Berber massacre of the Banu Masa, an unclear picture begins to emerge. A picture of convoluted, overlapping webs of allegiance, blood feuds, tribal loyalty, self-interest, and weak central control. And lack Of effective central control is a key point to remember here. If the state, or in this case the monarch, doesn't set up a strong and enforced legal system to control vendettas, then you basically have a constant cycle of revenge killings. Unless, of course, you hit upon the temporary but brutally pragmatic solution that Amrus did of just simply killing everyone involved. We don't know if Amrus was following orders from al-Hakam when he committed this carnage, or if he did it on his own initiative. Either way, it proved to be at least temporarily effective, since there were no more rebellions in Toledo for the rest of al-Hakam's reign. But the rebellions were just getting started. We have an interesting account from the 8th century author, Ibn al-Qutayyah, in which he describes an attempted coup in 805 in Córdoba. It's a fascinating glimpse into this world, even if it's not necessarily an accurate account. It goes as follows, A group of Córdoban chiefs disapproved of certain actions of the emir, which disquieted them, and tried to depose him. They approached one of his cousins, called Ibn al-Shamas. They approached him on this and wanted to enthrone him and depose al-Hakam. He pretended to agree and said, Tell me who is with you in this business, and they promised to tell him on the day which they appointed. Then he himself went to al-Hakam and informed him of this. Al-Hakam said to him, You are trying to turn me against the chiefs of my city. By God, you will prove this to me, or I will cut off your head. Send me someone you trust on such and such a night, said Ibn al-Shamas. And al-Hakam sent his page, Visint, and his secretary, Ibn al-Chadda. And so Ibn al-Shamas hid them in a place where they could hear what was said between him and them. They came and discussed the matter, and he asked them, Who is with you in this? And they gave names. So many that the secretary, fearing that he himself would be named, made a noise with his pen on the parchment. The conspirators were startled and said, What have you done, enemy of God? Those who left at once and fled were saved. Those who stayed were captured. Among those were the chief jurists in Spain. Six prominent men were arrested, and three of them were crucified. Because of this, the people of the suburbs rose up in arms and fought against the army. But being heavily outnumbered, they cried out that they would submit. Some of the viziers advised him to refuse while others advised him to accept it, saying that among them were good as well as bad. He accepted the opinion of those who advised leniency and allowed them to leave Córdoba. One of those who abetted the rising in the suburbs was Talut, who had studied under Malik and other great jurists. When the uprising failed, he fled from his house, which was in the city near the mosque and the ditch which bear his name, and remained hidden for a whole year in the house of a Jew until things became quiet and passions were calmed. There was friendship between him and the vizier, Abu al-Bassam, and he was growing wary of his stay in the house of the Jew. He went at nightfall to the house of Abu al-Bassam, the vizier. When he arrived, the vizier asked him where he had been, and Talut replied, With a certain Jew. The vizier promised him safety and assured him, and said, The Amir, God preserve him, has regretted what happened. Talut stayed the night with him, and the following morning, having left his guest in safe keeping, the vizier went to Al Hakam and said, What would you say to a fat sheep? That has been kept at the manger for a whole year. The flesh of a foddered animal is heavy, that of a free grazing animal is lighter and tastier. I mean something else, said Abu al Basam. I have Talut in my hands. How did you get a hold of him? asked Al Hakam. I caught him with kindness, replied the vizier. He was then summoned and given a chair. The old man was brought overcome with fear. He made obeisance and Al-Hakam said, "O Talut, tell me, if your father or your son had ruled in this palace, could they have shown you more generosity or more honor than I did? Did you ever ask me for anything for yourself or another that I did not hasten to grant you? Did I not, when you were sick, go to see you several times? Did I not, when your wife died, go to the door of your house? Did I not walk at her funeral, as far as the suburbs, and then walked back with you to your own house? Then what happened to you? What is the matter with you, that nothing would content you but to shed my blood, to disgrace and dishonor me? At this moment, Talut said, I can find nothing that will serve me better than the truth. I hated you for God's sake, and all that you did for me availed you nothing with me. Al-Hakam was shocked into silence and then said, I sent for you, and there is no punishment on earth which I did not think of in order to inflict on you. But no that he, for whose sake you hated me, diverted me from punishing you. Go, safe and sound in God's care. By God, I shall never cease to honor you and treat you as I did before for the rest of my life. Please God. But I wish that what had happened had not happened. Had it not happened, said Talut, it would be better for you. Then Al-Hakam turned to the vizier. Oh, Abu al-Basam, a Jew protected him out of respect for his eminence in religion and scholarship and endangered himself, his wife, his possessions, and his children at my hands, and you wanted to involve me again in something which I have already regretted. Then he said to Abu al-Basam, Leave me. By God, I never want to see your face again. He gave orders to remove his place in the council and dismissed him, and his descendants are decayed and degraded to this day. Talut was honored and respected until the day he died, as the emir had undertaken, and al-Hakam attended his funeral. After this, The emir was stricken by a long sickness which lasted seven years, in contrition and penitence for what he had done. In sickness he grew gentle, and he spent the nights reading the Quran until he died. Sources indicate that the end result of this attempted coup ended in the public crucifixion of 72 of the conspirators. The reign of Al Hakam was plagued by these types of insurrections, but I find it interesting that many of them happened right there in the capital where the emir resided. We have one last well recorded rebellion that took place in Cordoba on March 25, 818. The short version of this event is that the inhabitants of Secunda, the southern suburb of Cordoba, for reasons that are not explained to us, erupted into an armed rebellion. This mob decided to launch an attack on the emir's fortress palace, but the palace was connected to the city by a bridge. And once the mob made the mistake of crossing the bridge, the emir's troops pulled a pincer move, trapping the attackers on the bridge, and began slaughtering them on both ends. It's reported that many were killed, and... 300 survivors were crucified in a row all along the front of the emir's palace. But al-Hakam wasn't done yet. He ordered the complete destruction of the entire suburb, forcing the survivors to flee to other cities, or in some cases to flee to North Africa. This episode became known as the Massacre of the Suburb, So what can these events tell us beyond what's at face value? Well, for one, it seems obvious that the Umayyad emirs had a really hard time enforcing their authority over Al-Andalus. One of the foremost reasons for this is that they really didn't possess the troop numbers to do so. At this time, there were no standing armies in the Iberian Peninsula that could be deployed whenever necessary the closest thing the emirs had to a professional standing military force would be their royal guard. But the royal guard was only numerous enough to control the capital, but that's about it. As we saw earlier, they had to rely on other military elements to back them up, such as the Berber garrison in Talvada. But that begs the question, why could the emir rely on the Berbers but not on his fellow Arabs? If you recall a previous episode where I mentioned that the Berbers were despised by just about everyone around them, that ended up working out pretty well for the emirs, because the emir and his governors were the ones who stationed and paid them. So the Berbers owe their livelihoods to the emir. It's really that simple. And since there really weren't many people clamoring to take up the mantle of patron of the Berbers, it becomes easier to understand why their loyalty in general rested with the throne of Córdoba. The Umayyad's principal military power were the provincial tribal militias that were scattered throughout the kingdom. But those were typically summoned when there was a planned campaign. And given the ingrained hatred that the different tribal groups had for each other, using them in policing actions might have made a bad situation worse if you sent the wrong levy to the wrong place. It was a dangerous tightrope that the leaders of Al-Andalus were walking on. The question of why there were so many rebellions during Al-Hakam's reign is not an easy question to answer, but we do have some claims and some clues that help us get closer to the answer. It seems apparent that al-Hakam ruled by fear. We can see that he responded with a murderous ferocity to any threats to his power. And if there's one thing that a ruler can do to make their own people grow to hate them, it's indiscriminate killing. Additionally, some of our sources accuse the emir of forcing un-Islamic taxes to be implemented across the cities of the kingdom and the likely reason these new taxes were being introduced was to pay for the military buildup that al-Hakam was attempting. He is the first recorded ruler of al-Andalus to acquire slave soldiers known as Mamluks. He is also noted for recruiting a private bodyguard commanded by a local Christian, which seems to have rubbed the local nobility the wrong way since it typically would have been one of them to receive that honor. Overall, it looks like al-Hakam was attempting to establish a more reliable tax and military system. But those changes were being resisted by religious conservatives and the local nobility respectively. The uprisings and massacres in Cordoba overshadowed the events of the last years of the Emir's reign and he seems to have increasingly isolated himself in his palace, where he suffered from an unspecified illness. During his final days, he made sure that there was no question on who was to succeed him to the throne, by having all the leading members of the aristocracy swear an oath of allegiance to his son, Abd II. Then, on the 21st of May, 822 al-Hakam died. He was 50 years old and had ruled al-Andalus for 26 turbulent years. Al-Hakam's legacy is a tough one. On one hand, his work in instituting new taxes, however unpopular, created revenue streams that greatly benefited his successor. But as it so often does, his heavy-handed ruthlessness when confronting dissent created as many enemies as it eliminated, and it would fall on his son, Abd al-Rahman II, to deal with the consequences of al-Hakam's cruelty. Thank you for listening.